Hi everyone, I'm Karen Karitzer, CEO of the ARC and Ida Lewis, and together with Heather Evans, our Vice President of Development, we host the ARC Waves podcast. ARC Waves shares best practices and habits of diverse performers and leaders. These inspiring leaders are from all stages of the leadership wheel, from seasoned CEOs to emerging leaders, risk takers and innovators, for-profit and not-for-profit. Our guests are trailblazers, serving as beacons for those striving to be outstanding leaders in the disabilities field and beyond. Within the disabilities field, the greatest and most treasured asset is the direct support professional workforce. They are the lifeline to the care and support needed to help a person with their daily living needs, to feel part of the community, to be employed, and to achieve their dreams. It is important to note that while the prevalence of people diagnosed with an intellectual or developmental disability continues to rise, the workforce needed to support them has seen a rapid decline and a consistent societal erosion of the value of their work to care for others. However, the disabilities field has a strong voice and legislatures are listening and advocating for increased wages for direct support professionals and calling on Governor Hochul to help end the staffing crisis. New York State Senator John Mannion has been leading this charge attending rallies across the state shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with people we support, chairing the New York State Senate Committee for People with Disabilities, and making sure our voices are heard loud and clear. Senator Mannion joins us today to share his advocacy work and where we go next. Welcome, Senator Mannion. Thank you so much for being here today with Karen Koritzer and I. Thank you very much for uh, having me on. I really appreciate it and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So are we. We wish we could have you here in person, but I know you are so busy lately and we so appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Love to ask you some questions. Absolutely. Yeah, it is a busy time. You know, a, a bulk of our legislative session happens between January and June. Uh, when we're down in Albany doing the work, but but honestly, when you come back to the district, there's so many things to uh, take care of as related to grants and meetings to have. So anyway, I appreciate you accommodating me from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Mannion, um, you are the chair of the Senate Disabilities Committee, which is just one of the many committees you're involved in. Um, but as chair, you lead a group of legislatures from different regions and political ideas. Um, how, as a leader, do you reconcile those differences to affect positive change for intellectuals with individuals, excuse me, with intellectual and developmental disabilities? Well, I would say this, you know, I, I came from a background in public education. I was a science teacher for uh, 28 years. And uh, I think when I taught my students, I certainly didn't have any political agenda and my students or their parents didn't know. Uh, my politics or anything like that. So I also represent an area that has, you know, um, that we have a mix of representatives that are either Democratic or Republican. So regardless of that diversity of political affiliation or even uh, the diversity of my students, because they obviously had certain strengths, mm -hmm. um, some of them had disabilities, some may have had cerebral palsy or, or um, autism and uh, regardless of any of those of those things I I tried to always treat them equally and tried to always um, but accommodate whatever needs I thought they needed as a teacher I, I think I I made sure that I had good relationships with them so as far as the disabilities committee goes 
it's bipartisan. We mm -hmm. have Democrats and Republicans on there. And I've advanced legislation that has passed unanimously in in the both houses, meaning in the Senate and in the Assembly. And when I did pass some of that legislation, I made sure that like appointments to different task forces or advisory uh, committees had uh, appointments by the other party, like they had a place in that. And that might seem obvious to people, but it's actually not. A lot of the times, um, the party that's in the majority is the only one that has the voice. So I, um, people with disabilities are in all of our communities and yes. all of our families, uh, almost every family has someone that, that has a disability and needs some support. So it's something that's easy for all of us to fight for. It goes way beyond party lines and in, and in such a politically toxic environment that we exist in, I, I see it as such a blessing to be able to be the chair of this committee and work with my colleagues regardless of where they are regionally or where they are politically, it doesn't matter because we're all fighting to make sure that people have the opportunities available to them and they get the supports they need so that they lead, you know, a dignified and rewarding life like we all should have and deserve. Would you like a job at the Arconita Lewis <laughs> as an advocacy expert? <laughs> no, it's very heartwarming. Thank you. Um, so it's interesting that you talk about, you know, hearing the voices and people in the community. Um, in September, the Senate Disabilities Committee held a public hearing to evaluate the current workforce challenges of the Intellectual and Developmental Disability Services Delivery System. What were your key takeaways from that hearing that have become, that have become part of your advocacy narrative to other legislators and the governor? Well, uh, you know, the hearing, I think, is an important piece. It's a part of one way that I can advocate, and it's certainly a way to listen to the concerns of representatives around the state and the state and the, that serve in different capacities. Uh, but this is such a crisis. You know, it is a mm -hmm. crisis. I, and I will say often um, that it is a short-term crisis and a long-term crisis, and it's good to hear everything that people had to say that day. Somebody... I was talking to said, you know what, it's actually an immediate crisis. Yes. We, we cannot wait. And that's why I um, uh, am calling for $500 million uh, to be in the state budget uh, coming up here and for that $500 million to be there as not something we have to fight for every year, uh, that it should already be embedded in it. And the reason I say that is because we just received these or we're going to receive these enhanced FMAP dollars that are going to be distributed, dollars coming from the federal government of, to the tune of over $700 million it's projected. We advocated to make sure that those dollars get to the people who do the work and supporting wages and benefits and other, and other enhancements, I guess I would say, to the direct support professionals. So we believe we were listened to and the number we fell on is about $500 million. Well, this, this world, these, the state has so grossly underfunded uh, the disabilities world for so long that, that we're really at a crisis point. And those $500 million, it might seem like we're looking for something, we're looking for a handout. That money should already have been there. It should be there every year. Because if we're acknowledging that we now have the ability to put $500 million in because it's coming from the federal government, that lets me know we should have that every year. So that's one thing. I'll kind of rattle off some of the other things here that I think are important. 
we need to connect to to folks. We know that people who do this work are really a unique kind of person. They they develop very close ties to the individuals they work with. Um, these are relationships based on trust, and people are drawn to this profession. And I, I get to talk with with people almost every day that are direct support pro- professionals or work in a similar capacity. We need programs and internships. Work with our community colleges. Work with our public schools to make sure that some of our young people know that this opportunity is out there. Oh, and, absolutely. And we have to make sure that that opportunity that's there is properly supported with the funds from New York State so that organizations, agencies that hire these folks, um, that they have reasonable uh, Medicaid reimbursement rates and supportive funding from the state to make sure that they can pay a good wage and provide good benefits and stability. There needs to be career ladders uh, at the federal level. They need to establish a job code for direct support professionals. I also think you need, you know, if, um, well, those are a few things. And and finally, I'll say, I believe there needs to be a standalone minimum wage for people that work in this capacity. And there, you know, legislatively or legally, there might be some problematic things uh, with that. But what we've seen is these are jobs that require a lot of commitment. And um, if they're, if individuals are receiving the same wage that they could in a retail world or the fast food world, it's harder to retain people and it's harder to recruit them. And, and that's, that's where we are. It's not the fault of the agencies. It really is that the funding needs to be there so that we can support the agencies so they can support the people who do the work. I think, um, you know, everything that you're saying is right on. And I particularly am interested not only in the, obviously the important issue of wage increase and a living wage, but it's also, making sure that we provide training. These are not um, jobs where you can go in and learn how to, you know, work a coffee machine. This is a highly regulated field. Um, there's so much to learn, and you're, you're really working and caring for people, um, other people's lives. One of the things that I'm, I'm finding to be really interesting and a, a sort of more of an interesting development is you know we've talked about and I think it was shared even at the at the hearing was vacancy of DSPs in in sort of talking about it as a percentage right so it was 25% I heard vacancy factor for DSPs across the industry when I explain that to people who aren't in our field they don't really understand what that means mm-hmm. so one of the things that we've been doing um, at the Arc New York and talking with them about is how do you translate percentage into the number of hours that are vacant mm-hmm. from because we're in such a deep staffing crisis. So if you're looking at a 21%, 25% vacancy rate across you know uh, uh, the state or across just Arc New York, which happens to be a third of the field, you're talking about millions of hours that are vacant. We, we even looked at numbers recently for just the Arc New York, um, 7.5 million hours that are vacant that are trying mm. to be covered by existing DSPs, executive managers, uh, families are stepping up and saying, I, I will take my individual, you know, my loved one home with me for the weekend if that helps. Um, we're worried about the quality. We're worried about job burnout. 
Um, and we're worried about, you know, the ability to really keep somebody, um, retain staff, and the recruitment's just not there. So when you talk about it in the number and the millions of hours, and, and keep in mind, that's just a third of the field, right? The Arc New York is a third of the field. Um, I think that's a different narrative that we need to make sure, in my opinion, we need it to be heard to the public, to the governor's office, to the governor herself. What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I will say that whether it was in the hearing or outside of it, those those stories, those anecdotes really resonate and they they should resonate. Um, I, I think I have a lot to say about it. I'll I'll try to keep it brief. But, you know, when you when you hear stories about individuals that don't go can't go to their day have program and maybe mm-hmm. they can't because there's no one there to do that program or because there are fewer people in the residence where they are or or no one to transport them and leave that residence. Those are the stories that, again, I go back to the phrase, an enriched life, a rewarding life. Um, The pandemic has been very difficult for a lot of us, but but when, you know, um, we all like to go out and experience things and get, you know, get the, get the good stuff out of the world. And when, when, um, when so much is put on DSPs because of that vacancy rate and therefore the individuals that they serve can't go engage in these activities, it's, it's really, uh, when you hear the stories, it's really impactful. It's impactful on me. Um, I do agree with you that I think the world does not know this. If you have a family member who's being impacted, if you work in, in this world, you know that we're at a crisis point. Others do not. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I have, uh, you know, a couple things to say about that. I will I will say that I think hearing the stories of DSPs having to go and work in other facilities and, and work double shifts and, and, and doing what they can because they care so much and they're so committed, they go into places and if they need to be able to change a feeding tube or they need some other skill and they have to come into a setting and, and they – if they have that um, uh, skill, whether it's certified skill or not, you know, they need to be supported. I think I think we because we need people with those skills. We need a special type of person. And we need to show them uh, the appreciation of, of being able to do all those things. But it needs to be shown, you know, in a way that they are compensated because they have lives, too. And they're so dedicated that they will do it. But but we need to support them. Um, you know, the, the, the vacancy that you're talking about, the dollars that we're spending in overtime dollars, and I'm happy that people are receiving those overtime hour, hours. But really, if we were if we had these positions filled and they were filled because, you know, for one reason, the wages were robust enough that people were drawn to it or stayed in it. I think that would solve a lot of those things. So it's really a very complex issue. We didn't get here overnight. We got here because the state has not funded this this world for the course of over uh, a decade. And as a result, we're at a breaking point. It needs urgent action. We need to get those federal dollars through the door. Uh, you know, OPWDD has submitted their plan for those enhanced FMAP dollars. The federal government needs to approve them. I hope that happens. It's going to provide incentives for longevity, working through the pandemic vaccination status all that's important but i don't want to have this conversation five or ten years down the road which means we really need to treat the people who do the work and the agencies that hire them 
uh, with the with the supports that they need and the respect that they deserve. Absolutely, I, t- yeah. I totally agree with you. And I just um, I have one more question because I can hear my uh, voice is start, starting to die here. Yeah. Um, so there have been many leadership changes at state agencies over the last few months with the new administration including the Office of People with Developmental Disabilities and the recent nomination of Carrie Neifeld as the commissioner. What would you like to see happen under the new OPWDD commissioner? Well, um, you know, I I think Governor Hochul uh, has made a commitment to, um, you know, openness in government and transparency and taking input from others. And I will say that I believe from what I um, know about uh, you know, newly named Commissioner Neifeld is that she has the experience to do a good job. She has the background. Um, she has the intelligence and and the network. Um, I am looking forward to working with her, and I believe that the frustration that many uh, self advocates or family advocates or leaders of um, organizations feel is they need to be listened to. They need an advocate. And they need to be a part of the decision-making process because when it comes to some of these complex issues that exist in this world, the people who are the boots on the ground who do the work have, have really some great ideas. And I am hopeful and believe that, um, you know, Commissioner Neifeld will be a listener, will we'll take input from others. I, I think the frustration is that when there seems to be some logical fixes, that can occur and then that they don't happen or they can't get people can't get their voice heard by a state agency they're frustrated you Mm -hmm. know um i will give you sort of uh one uh specific i guess example i just get into this seat and there's uh many people might be familiar with the cdpap program and the uh fiscal intermediaries in the state was taking um you know, bids to reduce that number, to uh, lower the number of them. And, uh, you know, there was a delay in that information coming out. And, uh, but when it did come out, all of a sudden that number was greatly reduced. And there was lack of like local uh, generationally established uh, agencies that were sort of left out that did not make the cut. And, and we worked quickly um, to try to get language into the budget to expand that process and make sure that there were local uh, agencies that were headquartered that, that could uh, carry out this work. And I, I know I might be getting into the weeds a little bit here, but, but that's the kind of thing where I just think you need the local connection. Hopefully the new commissioner will listen to input and um, from others and listen to those solutions. That's what I'm looking for. I think that's what the people who are self-advocates and family advocates and, and again, agent or organization leaders are looking for. You know, uh, Senator Mannion, I think this is Heather again. Um, I think that's why you holding those public hearings is so important because it really does start to generate some of that grassroots understanding. And as people like Karen and I who are in the field who are more tuned in than to that sort of issue than people maybe just on the street listen more and share that information through social media and through forums such as this podcast it can help generate that that more widespread grassroots interest because to your point you made earlier everyone is in some way touched by someone in the intellectual and developmental di- um, disability community whether it's directly or tangent tangentially um allowing 
people to be able to all live that enriched life is an imperative for every one of us. I'm 100% uh, in agreement with you and, and, and glad to hear that because you hope that when you do something like holding a hearing, it, it has an impact. You hope that all or you hold a rally. Um, and I just was contacted by another state legislator uh, today that said, what can I do? What do you think on a certain issue? And it is disabilities relief. What can I do to get the attention of of the governor or the agencies that would be involved? And, you know, um, that lets me know, number one, that that people are paying attention, mm-hmm. that they are listening. And number two, my advice to them was you have people who need services in your district. So uh, if you choose to hold a press event or a rally or a roundtable in your district, there's going to be people there. And that's the way that I think we all sing the same song and then have a louder voice so that, uh, like I said, um, changes are made, necessary changes are made for this community. And we're not having this conversation again down the road. I love that imagery of all singing the same song. I picture this chorus of change, um, you know, to kind of drive that forward. It's so beautiful. And I, I just, I appreciate that. I, I think there, I, as a teacher, I uh, was always in my classroom. I know that a positive environment in that classroom is much more than just a positive environment. Uh, mm-hmm. If you reap the rewards of it. So even though there's many reasons to be discouraged, if you, um, Pay, are paying attention to where we are with the staffing crisis or housing crisis. There's also room for optimism. These FMAP dollars are optimistic. I think the crisis has gotten to a point where so many people are aware of it. And it's and and unfortunately, it comes with some of these awful stories where agencies have to make difficult decisions. You have individuals being moved from their residences and having to move with, work with other staff because of this uh, staffing crisis. And it's those things that are impacting families. They're contacting their legislators. They're holding their own rallies. And I, I'm really hopeful that we have um, some changes that occur in how in our mindset as it relates to the disabilities community. I do think people are feeling more positive and more yeah. optimistic. I think you being at all the rallies, um, and really the, the hearings that you have um, provided to the public, really getting the information out, the, the stories out, listening to people. I think people feel heard, but I think we're also at a time coming out of the pandemic and over the last you know 10 plus years, feeling like we've got a lot to say. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to say. We've been through a lot for the last 10 years, budget cuts, budget scares, programs, you know, mergers and I I think this is the time and you have done such a beautiful job in doing this is giving people the opportunity to be heard. But then there's that next step of, okay, you know, let's really see what we can do to, to take action. Are you optimistic about that? I think you have to be, you know, I, I have to be, um, and, and I hope others are, it doesn't come without time or effort. Uh, we all have busy lives. People in leadership positions have busy lives. Um, but I, I do think that many people have made this 
uh, a priority. I, I will tell you what motivates me, and I haven't mentioned it. I my aunt had Down syndrome. Um, she lived in a residences, and uh, you know I watched my father advocate for her, and I think he saw you know great experiences for my aunt, and then some where he had to advocate a little bit stronger. Mm -hmm. I, I have a son who's 23 years old who was diagnosed with autism at three and a half. Um, my wife has her master's in special education. I worked in public ed, of course, for a long time. But regardless of that, we advocated for our son. We um, worked through, you know, the CPSE process and the CSE process. And we, uh, he had intensive services as a result. And we saw him, uh, you know, his atypical behaviors decrease, his, his skills uh, acquisition increased dramatically. And without that, he, he wouldn't be where he is today. So that's really what motivates me. He graduated from college. He drives his own vehicle and he, um, you know, is employed in, in his field. And it's those things that motivate me. I, I uh, was, um, you know, I worked with different groups, including um, Special Olympics. And, and uh, you know, when I uh, spoke with some of those athletes, how they persevered and continued their training like through this pandemic um there's so many victories and i think the victories in this world are are so much sweeter and because there's an appreciation for what can be overcome mm -hmm. and my wife and i feel blessed that you know our our son has done so well and that's not it, every family and every individual has different challenges it just happens to be our story if the state puts their money in the right places, in early intervention, um, in in various therapy programs and other programs, it is going to save them money down the road. And that's important, but more important is what we've been talking about. And that is that as New Yorkers, whether someone has a disability or not, uh, the state, the government is there to provide those supports. They need to provide them so that like we keep saying, people have an enriched and rewarding uh, life. And, uh, you know, that's what motivates me. And I think we have to be optimistic. Senator Mannion, I feel like half the time we do these podcasts, I get choked up and it just happened again. Thank you so much for sharing that story. You, your personal connection to the field is obviously very, very strong and very emotional. Um, there are a lot of people who don't have that sort of close-up connection uh, with the challenges of people might be facing um, with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So when you take the time to share that sort of story, I think it really brings it to life for those of us who haven't had a direct uh, contact with some of the challenges. Um, right. and, and being able to do that uh, hopefully will drive action both from an individual level, but also, as you said, to a state level. Um, because, you know, to your point earlier, that lack of state funding over the past decade also leads more to the in invisibility of the IDD field. Um, and we need to make that a visible field. We need to make that an upfront, out loud, hey, we're here, we have value, incredible value, and we quietly toil day in and day out uh, for people who need our help. Um, so thanks for giving that a voice. Absolutely. You know, I, 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 do have reason for optimism and i appreciate the compliment i appreciate everything that that both of you do um but you know when i talk to 
universities and have seen how they have expanded their programs just over the past five years or in helping uh, navigate, I guess, the hiring world with my son, who is fairly recently graduated from college. You see many uh, employers that uh, are committed to hiring people with intellectual mm -hmm. or developmental disabilities. Um, and I think they see not just that that's important for them as a, as a community member or organization, but that there's such value in these individuals. And I do, um, uh, you know, a lot of these positive changes happened with inclusiveness in public education, yes. but I think it's only expanding recently. And I do think a lot of it is because of people's personal connection and then a commitment to making sure that we advocate for this group. And, uh, and uh, I appreciate your words and, and all your work uh, as, as you highlight uh, how we can do better in this field also. It's, it's such an important piece of that diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation to include people with disabilities because yeah. oftentimes those are, quote, unquote, invisible uh, differences or aspects of diversity. Um, so it, it's, um, it's important that we create those spaces. Um, I have one more question for you. Um, you know, as an educator at West Genesee and Camillus, uh, my alma mater, you did impact many students and colleagues over the decades. Um, in fact, I spoke with Teresa Williams, who was my bio teacher when I was there, and uh, she stated, John was an outstanding colleague, and I totally enjoyed sharing a passion for teaching biology with him. He also had a wonderful sense of humor, which I thought was a really sweet compliment, so I want to pass that on. Um, but I have to ask, as a... A teacher, um, I'm sure that possibly or hopefully impacted how you approach your role as a senator. What did you learn in your time in, as a teacher in terms of how to communicate and, and meet people where they are? Yeah, but now you got me choked up, so I appreciate <laughs> oh. that. Uh, tell Mrs. Williams I appreciate the compliment if you see her before I do. I certainly but will. I will say, uh, you know, uh, somebody said this to me once when we were talking about something that was happening in a classroom and they said, you know what, we don't get to choose what kids uh, come into our classroom. We don't get a choice. Those kids come in. We have to love them all. We have to treat them all equally. We have to care for them. Uh, again, it, you know, um, by the end of that school year, uh, the relationships that I built with those students were so rewarding and, and I carry with them forever. And actually one of the fun things about running for office that I did not expect is a lot of my former students then were like tagging me on Facebook or Twitter and oh, sharing cool. it out like, hey, class of, you know, 2014, look at what Mr. Manning's doing and all that kind of stuff. And I reconnected with a lot of those kids. So I think, you know, when you're a teacher, um, you, you have to maintain those relationships. You have to deal with conflict revolution. You have to be able to be uh, malleable. You have to mm -hmm. adapt. You never know when the snow day's coming. You never know <laughs> when the whole group's going to, you know, not do great on a test. You, you never know uh, a whole bunch of things. So you've got to be on your feet. You've got to be organized. And for me, I was in the people business. And like I said at the beginning of this, I don't, I don't know. I might assume I might be able to uh, you know, try to imagine what the home lives are for all those kids. But in really, in reality, I don't know. I don't know. And, you know, you always have to treat uh, the people in front of you with respect. I feel like I treated them as adults. I expected a lot from them. And, um, and I expect a lot from my colleagues or, 
or people that work in different capacities. So, I mean, I, I think it was a great uh, precursor or prerequisite into this. I think we need diversity Mm -hmm. in people that represent us in the legislature. And that also includes diversity of, of individuals that might have uh, intellectual or developmental disabilities. And there are some very strong advocates out there that, that do a lot of that work and um, are political. Uh, yeah. And and there, if you do hear a sound uh, on the call here, I, on the phone, I do apologize. I have a call coming in and I'm not taking the call. Back. <laughs> I'm, I'm apologizing. Unless it's the governor. Yeah. Unless it's the governor. Not, it, I did take, I will be honest, I did take a peek at my phone and, you know, uh, it, uh, the governor or my wife. Uh, there you go. The only two that interrupt. Yeah, those, are, so. those are good priorities. Well, and I will, I have to interrupt, you know, when uh, right before Governor Hochul was sworn in, she happened to call me about three days before and as uh, phones will, um, uh, you know, hold on to those recent calls for about a week, I found myself uh, showing my my phone log to a number of people who thought I'd never make it in politics. There you go, bragging rights. There you go. (laughs) Well, Senator Mannion, thank you so much for joining us today. We'd like to finish up uh, our conversations with individuals uh, with a couple of fun questions, um, if you don't mind. Sure, absolutely. We call them our lightning round questions. All right. I'll so, try to be lightning quick with well, well, and I have been long-winded a couple times. Well, there's only run one right answer to the first one, so let's see if you get it. Uh, favorite high school sport mascot? So I'm... Uh, I will go with Wildcat. Uh, well done. Because I'm a, I am have a feeling that um, any questions after that, if I don't say Wildcat, will be much tougher questions than the ones I've fielded already. That's right. I, I do have uh, notes in front of me, depending on what you answered. Okay, uh, great. <laughs> yeah. uh, favorite subject to teach in biology? You know, I, I always answered this when people ask me with genetics, because I am fascinated by genetics. But uh, I uh, now I'm going to say viruses how's that for an answer uh i i will uh quick story in my lightning round is on february 1st of 2020 i taught about viruses and covid19 had already started and i talked to my students about uh our values and how um you know honestly contagious and lethal this virus was compared to some other ones sure And, and then on about march Eighth, I was teaching uh, immunity. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think I have a lot to say about that. And, uh, and, and um, you know, my students were great. And we certainly had a lot of emotions as those, those that last month as, um, as we then went virtual. But anyway, um, you know, I, I am thankful that I have it, it taught uh, viruses and bacteria and immunity at the college level for 22 years, 20 years in a classroom, but 22 with AP Bio, and I feel like it's been very helpful in dismissing, I guess, some of the things that are out there that are not, you know, a little bit of misinformation. Sure. Hopefully people value and trust what I have to say about it. Oh, that's awesome. I, yeah. could, I could talk to you till I'm blue in the face about that, but we'll save that for another time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I t- cellular uh, biology is uh, very exciting for me. That in Latin, I don't know, I'm a mega nerd. Um, uh, excellent. <laughs> and finally, advice for someone who wants to make a difference via political career. You know, I go, um, I, I did go back to West Genesee and I was in the participation in government classes. And, and this question came up, which is great. You know, we, we exist in such a 
a politically toxic time, one that I didn't grow up to this extent in. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got to turn it around. Most people really don't feel the way that some things are projected on social media or media. So this is the advice I give folks. If you are, if you do lean towards one of the two major parties, go to them, join their committee, join the town committee, join the county committee, and they're going to need you to go out and get signatures. You can provide input into candidate recruitment and things like that. If you are not um, drawn to either party and you're drawn to a cause, there are organizations out there that are advocating for certain legislation or certain funding. Find your cause. Inevitably, you'll find an organization that's out there, and that organization will have a political piece to it. And Mm -hmm. they need people to go do that work. Get to those organizations and say, I want to be the one that goes and gets on the call with Senator Mannion or my assembly person or or gets in their office and tells them that this is why we need, let's finish with this, more funding for people with disabilities. There you go. Well, Senator Mannion, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for being so accessible uh, for our podcast, and we hope that... Uh, the listeners can uh, hear this message and share it out there uh, with others who maybe have not been so initiated. Thank you, honestly, for everything that you do um, and are doing to, to really help um, the people that we support and, and the employees in our, in our field. Absolutely, and thank you, too, for what you do. I uh, say this, and I, I thank people when I'm at a rally or I'm at a meeting. I thank them for working in this world, in this, in whatever capacity they do, they have made a decision, they've made a choice to work with people with disabilities. Not everyone makes that choice. I do believe it's like a vocation. I do believe people are drawn to it, but I thank them because of all the things that they could do, they chose to do this. And and again, it's, uh, as I said, the rewards, you can't put a price tag on, the, um, you know, the, the victories, are, you can't compare it to others when great things happen, um, but we also need to support it from a governmental standpoint, and that's why I'm happy that you had me on today and allowed me to, to say some of the things that I did. Thank you, Senator Mannion. Take care and have a nice day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Disclaimer, the views, ideas, and opinions expressed in this podcast are only those of the individuals involved and do not reflect the official policy or position of the ARC Oneida Lewis chapter, the ARC New York, or any other agency, organization, employer, or company.